Welcome to Regeneration. We're in the second week of our Lenten series, and today we'll be looking at the chief priests, the high priests, to give us a clearer picture of Jesus. And this is what our entire Lenten series is about and will do for us. And we started looking at Judas Iscariot last week, and we'll be looking at other characters through the Passion of the Christ until Easter. And again, we're not highlighting these other characters. We're looking at those stories to highlight Jesus and to see Jesus more clearly. Let's look at our verses from John 11 this morning. We are kind of backtracking a bit because last week we started with John chapter 12 because it was a good dividing line and we also wanted to look at Judas Iscariot who was with Jesus since the beginning of his public ministry. But we're going to go back to John 11 this morning and then we're going to dive a little deeper into a couple of the characters we find here. Now starting in verse 5 of John chapter 11. Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. Now this is Mary Lazarus's sister. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead earlier in this chapter. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The chief priests and, and the Pharisees tended to be two different groups, which is why John separates them from each other here in verse 47. The chief priests tended to be Sadducees, not Pharisees. The high priest, the leader of the Sanhedrin, was almost always a Sadducee. Now, who were these Sadducees? They were a religious faction of Jewish aristocrats who held this immense wealth and this great power within the Jewish society in Jesus' day. When you look at archaeology, archaeologists support that these, these findings, when they find these extremely luxurious and lavish homes they, that they've discovered in Jerusalem, that they've belonged to Sadducees. And so they used that power and that wealth to greatly influence Jewish society as well as influence what their Roman oppressors were doing. Because, the, because Rome was in power at the time, but they would use that influence, they would use that power, they would use that wealth to get their way. Now in Jesus' day, the Sadducees were in power of the two most important establishments within Jewish society. One being the temple and the other being the Sanhedrin. Now the temple was the center of Jewish religious life, of spirituality, and the Sanhedrin was this Jewish governing body, the, the ruling council over all religious issues, all legal issues within the Jewish community. And so it would be similar to our Senate or our Congress. The high priest, usually a Sadducee, was the leader of the Sanhedrin, and this person had king-like authority over this ruling body, governing body. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't the best of friends. It would be similar to our party system where we have Democrats and Republicans. And they just seldomly get together on issues. right? And, and if they do, it's odd. 
Things are so partisan for our government, and it's similar to what was going on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So when the Pharisees and the Sadducees say, what are we to do? Something strange is going on. It's odd. Take a look at verses 48 and 49. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place Place meaning that the position that they had manipulated themselves into and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. The office of the high priest was typically a lifelong office, kind of like our Supreme Court justices. It was a lifelong office. But things changed with the Roman government in power. They decided who would fill that high office, who would fill the office of high priest. That this particular year, as John wrote, Caiaphas was the high priest. Caiaphas was a Sadducee, as was his father-in-law, Annas, who was the high priest before and, and who I'll share more about a little later. Both of these men played really significant roles in the suffering, passion, execution of Jesus. But there was reason for them to be concerned about Jesus. Because Jesus threatened their oppressive system by pointing out what was wrong with it. Jesus pointed out that their corrupt relationship with Rome, how that hurt the people, how that hurt their relationship with God. And so this was what was happening. The Sadducees had control of the temple. They had control of the Sanhedrin. They had power. They have power of the place, the temple. This is where devout Jews would go to make sacrifices to the Lord according to the law of Moses. They had power over that. They had power over the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is where that governing body, that ruling body, would determine whether the sacrifices brought to the temple met their standards. Now, in order for them to be as wealthy as they had become, of course, those sacrifices did not meet their standards for the temple sacrifice. Only what they had in stock was suitable for temple sacrifice. And they had control and power over both. And so what they did was they would charge the people a fee for one of their suitable sacrifices as determined by the Sanhedrin. But then these transactions over here had to be done using Jewish shekels, using their currency, which people from all over the world who came for the different feasts and festivals for Passover, did not have because they were bringing currency from wherever they were coming from, which was mostly likely a, a, a Roman form of currency. But they weren't acceptable to the Sanhedrin, so they would have to money change. They had a currency from wherever they came from, and when they got to here, the Sanhedrin and the temple, they'd have to go to a money changer pay a fee for that money to be 
changed as well as pay an inflated currency rate. They were robbing the people. They were thieves. This is how they became wealthy. And then they used this wealth to then increase their power. It was just a criminal scheme. Now who started this scheme? It's interesting. Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas. When Annas was high priest, he created this crime syndicate within the temple. Corruption in the temple became so blatant that it came to be known as Annas's Bazaar. And they, they got away with this for a long, long time. Since Annas was high priest, now his son-in-law was placed as high priest by the Romans. But this is how long it's been going on until Jesus. In John chapter 2, Jesus drove out the Sadducees from the temple. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. At that time, John chapter 2, Jesus came directly against Annas, Caiaphas, that entire criminal, corrupt system of the Sadducees. He came directly against it. And that day, they lost a lot of money. And then it had people question how things were being done because year after year, people just did it. They didn't think about it. But now, the people who were exchanging their sacrifices, who were deemed perfectly fine from their rabbi, or who were deemed perfectly fine from what they could see from the law of Moses. They go there, and then these money changers are just cheating them out of currency exchange, out of changing to shekels, uh, charging them fees, charging them exorbitant amounts for that sacrifice. Like, why would that goat cost so much more than the goat that I bought? And that whole thieving system had a risk of falling. Finally. And so you can see why they wanted to kill Jesus. Because eventually, the system does come crashing down because the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Rome when they were led by General Titus. And since they were so dependent on the temple to run their scheme, there was no way for them to continue the scheme once the temple fell. But this is what they were afraid of. They were afraid of losing their power. They were afraid of losing their wealth. And so they, they wanted to kill Jesus so that they can keep all of that. Verses 50 and 51. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. John was not writing this to tell us that Caiaphas was a prophet who was speaking positively about Messiah. John was writing this to tell us that God used Balaam's donkey 
he can also use Caiaphas. But Caiaphas does speak of what Jesus will do, not just for the nation, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, Caiaphas didn't get this entirely wrong. He did share the gospel, even though he didn't accept the gospel himself. Out of all of the religious leaders, you'd think that the high priest would be able to recognize prophecy from the scriptures. You'd think Caiaphas, Annas, and all the high priests in between that Rome had placed and displaced would be able to recognize Messiah. Now why do I bring Annas up so much? Because Annas was the high priest in A.D. 7. He was high priest. Ten years later, the Roman government officials unseated him as high priest. And then the Roman government selected Annas. Well, they selected Annas in 7 A.D. They deposed him ten years later. And even though Annas was ousted as high priest, he was still the person calling the shots behind the scenes all those years, for many years. How so? Well, the people appointed to the seat of high priest were several of his sons. Several of his sons served as high priest. And then Annas' influence would remain even though he didn't have the title. And so he was like, the Godfather. You know Puzo's book, The Godfather, they made a movie out of it. It's like when Vito Corleone, the, the main Godfather, he steps down as, as the boss, the crime syndicate boss. His son, Sonny, has stepped in. His son, Michael Corleone, steps in. But all that while, Vito's still the boss. He's still the boss. That's Annas. Annas is still the boss. Annas was the high priest, even though he didn't have the title of high priest. And Caiaphas, what he did was he just kept it in the family. So rather than just sons of Annas going in, now Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, was inserted there. And the, the relationship between son-in-law and a powerful father-in-law is not that hard to figure out, is it? Caiaphas was, was, the, we was the one wearing the official garb, and, and conducting the religious ceremonies, but all the while it's Annas who was really the one calling all the shots. So, so nothing would happen to Jesus without Annas' support. Verse 53, So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. They, look at that pronoun, they made plans to put him to death. The Sadducees and the Pharisees together planned to put Jesus to death. These two factions of Jewish religion did not like each other. They didn't agree on very much. But this plan, they're totally together for. Strange, right? And there's no way that they could do this without the support of Annas. Our Savior, Jesus, was conspired against by religious leaders. And even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand when Jesus told them that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. They didn't understand the cross 
that they would need to bear as a follower, disciple, who trusted in Jesus. And here's something about suffering. We don't really understand it either. People have all sorts of interpretations of what a Christian is. Decades ago, there was a different thought about what a Christian was. And you fast forward 20 years later, 30 years later, and things have changed. Christians aren't associated with honesty as we should be. And there are a lot of virtues that we were once associated with as Christians that aren't so anymore, and this has been a very unfortunate thing. That there are so many people who call themselves Christians who claim to worship, love, trust Jesus Christ, but then they ignore Jesus Christ as someone who suffered a most humiliating death. And as believers in Christ, we will share in that suffering. We've been really far removed from the suffering of Christ, here in the church in America at least. So much so that the very instrument that caused so much suffering to Jesus is just a decorative piece today. It's just an ornament or something people put in their homes. And what used to be a sign of piety that was worn by pious, devout followers of Jesus Christ, the cross is now worn by whoever wants to wear it. There is no piety behind it. In fact, a lot of the times it's blasphemy. And if we just sit back and, and think about what people are wearing when they put on the cross, it's actually a really strange thing. It's, it's a strange thing to wear. It's a strange thing to display when Jesus isn't your God. It makes total sense if Jesus is God. But people don't display electric chairs or nooses or syringes filled with poison as earrings, as necklaces, as decorative items in their home. Yet the cross is displayed everywhere. It is worn everywhere. When, when that was the instrument Jesus Christ was suffering on and died on. And millions of people have lost their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. And what we've done as the Western church is we've, we've sanitized it. We've sterilized it in what being a Christian is today. We've associated being a good Christian with being a good citizen. That's kind of essentially what we've done, that being a Christian can mean that we're just a good person, that we're just a good citizen, but that's not what it means. Being a Christian means we follow, that we trust a crucified Savior who suffered. It's dying to ourselves, bearing our cross, that Christ asks of us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has 
been crucified to me and I to the world. What kind of life are we living? It seems that Christians often strive for the absence of suffering. The life of a Christian is not one that a lot of people appreciate or even want. We follow the life of Jesus Christ who suffered and died on a cross. People of this world don't want that. Who wants to bear a cross? Who wants to die to themselves? We're just busy fulfilling ourselves for, for, for just chasing our own appetites and pleasures. People of this world want what Caiaphas, what Annas wanted. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus was getting in their way of the things that they wanted. Even these really long-standing spiritual leaders were actually very secular people. Just like the church today. We have very spiritual-looking people who are actually just very secular people. And just because people look like, on the outside, like devout spiritual leaders, doesn't mean that they are. We've come to have really high standards for spiritual leaders. And we expect them to meet those standards. We expect spiritual leaders to be spiritual. But we've also been really let down, haven't we? When they haven't met those expectations, so many spiritual leaders that we've looked up to, they have fallen. So many spiritual leaders we've come to expect spiritual leadership from get more involved in matters other than spiritual matters. They get more involved in political matters than they do with spiritual matters. That's, that's why they wanted to kill Jesus. They were totally involved in those politics with the Romans and, and who should pay what and how we can get away with what and increase our power and increase our wealth. They wanted to keep their power. They wanted to keep their wealth. They wanted so much more to be involved in the political maneuvering that, than they were in the spiritual growth of people. They weren't really looking at the, the worthiness of sacrifices. They were looking at wanting to make money off of that. Are we going the way of Jesus and what that all entails? Or are we getting involved in other things? Annas and Caiaphas didn't go the way of Jesus. They were Sadducees. They were very different from Pharisees. These groups did not believe the same things. They didn't get along. They were debating and fighting each other all the time. Their beliefs were very different. Pharisees, Pharisees were conservative Jews who believed in the supernatural. They believed in miracles. They believed that God worked powerfully in people's lives. Sadducees didn't believe that. Sadducees were, were secularists who, who didn't believe in the supernatural. They, they didn't believe in heaven, hell, angels, demons, resurrection, which is all unbiblical. You can read the Bible that it believes these things. They were just simply secular people. They didn't think that God had any role in a person's life, that a person had an unrestrained free will to do whatever they wanted to do and that they were the master of their own destiny. So why did they follow Torah 
And why did they believe in ritual purity as written in the Torah? Greed. It was their way of power to have control of the temple, to have control of the Sanhedrin, leading the temple services. This generated a huge income for them. And the Sadducees were people who greatly valued tradition. They were even willing to die for their tradition. But it wasn't because they believed in God who pierced the darkness and entered our world. There are a lot of similarities between people today and the theology, the philosophy of the Sadducees. People who claim to be Christians, but they don't preach the gospel. And it happened in Jesus' day. It is happening today. Christians, Christian leaders today who preach messages that are completely contradictory to the teachings of Christ. And there are so many people today who listen to messages where the gospel is never shared. It's just some speech of encouragement. Some self-help thing. That if Jesus showed up today, there'd be more people interested in crucifying Jesus rather than bowing down before him and trusting him. There are too many religious leaders who are more politically motivated than they are spiritually motivated. And it's nothing new. It was the same thing back then, same thing today. Happened with the Sadducees, continues to the world, in the world today. People who claim to be spiritual leaders when in actuality they're just secular people of the world where innocent people are condemned and guilty people are absolved just like Jesus. Where the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they both come together so that they can condemn Jesus. But they don't have the power to execute Jesus because only the Romans were able to do that. So what do they do? The Sadducees had so much wealth, they had so much power, and these religious leaders were able to manipulate the judicial system so that Jesus would be unfairly tried and executed. And the Sanhedrin conducted an illegal trial even according to their own laws. They conducted an unethical trial. They conducted an unbiblical trial. And what they did was illegal according to their own law. And what were the charges against Jesus? Blasphemy. That was the charge against Jesus. This was the charge against Jesus for the last three years of his life. Early in Jesus' ministry, he forgave the sins of a paralytic and healed that paralytic man. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. You and I couldn't say your sins are forgiven. We can't say that. How would someone even know if we said that? Well, you know what? It'd be different if a group of friends brought a paralyzed buddy in of theirs and, he, and then one of us healed that person and then said, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a little more believable. But you still wouldn't know for sure if the person's sins were indeed forgiven. But Jesus, Jesus claims his authority is from God. And that's why he's able to do that. And he healed that paralytic. And they all saw that. But then he's charged with blasphemy. Jesus, who was innocent, was condemned to absolve us who are guilty. You see how true Caiaphas' words, even though he didn't know the magnitude of his words. Back to John 11 and verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas had other reasons in mind as to why Jesus should die. Because it would totally tear down what he's used to, what his father-in-law built, what his brother-in-law's built, what he is a part of now, and he wanted to preserve the schemes of the temple. He wanted to preserve their power, to preserve their wealth, and the false charge of blasphemy on Jesus, who was innocent. Because how can God blaspheme himself? Do you know who has really blasphemed against God? You and me. You and me. How? Because we put ourselves in the place that is reserved only for God. That's why you and I are guilty of blasphemy. You and I place ourselves in the center of the universe where we are the most important people. And we do this all the time. You and I are really the ones who are guilty of blasphemy. But innocent Jesus Christ took our condemnation upon himself on the cross. You and I couldn't stand before God as innocent of the charges of blasphemy against us without Jesus Christ. No matter how good you think you are, you're not innocent of the charges of blasphemy. No matter how good of a citizen you think you are, how good of a person you are, and the ironic thing is that the high priest Caiaphas, who rejected, who hated the gospel, was the first to preach the gospel. He just didn't trust it. Jesus Christ died for their blasphemy, but most of them did not receive it. Jesus Christ died for our blasphemy. Have we trusted him? Have we received his gift to us? Do you trust that Jesus paid for your guilty charges 
with his own life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, last week we were confronted with Judas Iscariot and where our trust is this week along the same vein of trusting in you, Lord. How we need you because we are indeed guilty. We are blasphemous. So many of us think that we are God. That we know the difference between good and evil and that we are the judges of that rather than you and how you've laid that out for us in your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill your church, individuals in the church, to go about doing your work. I pray, Lord, for the salvation of those who don't know you. I pray, Lord, somehow that they've tuned in, whether it's our church service or others that are preaching the gospel, that it would penetrate their hearts, minds, spirits, that it would grab hold of them and that they would confess their sins and repent, accepting you as their Lord and Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Please reach out to us if you have more questions in regards to Jesus and what he has done. And our next time of sacrament is for communion. And so if you have trusted your life to Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate in this sacrament. And so we invite you to take the bread that is symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. Only take this if you have indeed trusted the Lord Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. It would be blasphemous otherwise. So as you take this bread symbolizing the body of Christ broken for you and I, we take this in celebration, we take this in remembrance of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Let's take this together. We have the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. Perhaps there are some who need to repent. Please don't let this time be rushing for you. That if you need to pause, just press that pause button and pray to the Lord. Meditate upon scriptures. Think about your relationship with God and commune with God. This is communion. And so take your time. Please don't let us rush you through this. But we eagerly await the second coming of Christ, and we take this sacrament until his return. Let's take this in remembrance of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are in our second week of Lent, and as we are approaching closer and closer to Easter, I pray that our hearts are being changed, that the spiritual practice of fasting is taking hold within us to help us experience the discomfort and the small suffering within us to focus on you, to focus on your suffering, to focus on what you did for us. Help us to see you more clearly 
during these holy times that have been set apart for you. In Jesus' name, amen.